Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Scott Richards mid-conversation for the next hour to answer your Bible questions. If you'd like to send them to us... Good thing we weren't gossiping or anything. Yeah, we don't do that anyway. (laughs) But the uh, means by which you can send us your questions are, of course, email, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Our Twitter page is scottr4h at twitter.com, and our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. However, since most of those platforms are sketchy at best, we encourage you first and foremost to join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab. You'll be sent to where we are live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. And there on the right-hand side of the screen, you can leave your questions for us or email them to us. We'll have the email address spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen. However, while YouTube and Facebook are available to us, we will take full advantage. Note that the email address will be spelled out there as well. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, we welcome and appreciate your participation in the broadcast. Just know that is how you can engage with us. Email us at questions, F-O-R-hope at gmail.com. A lot of, uh, well, prophecy updates to a point, but current events reports for sure, and making sure you're all informed and able to process this through a biblical rather than a cynical lens. But before we make the attempt, we want to first start off with a word of prayer. Since yeah, I've done of... most of the talking, you want to start with talking <laughs> to God? <laughs> I would. I would. I'd love that. Father, I thank you that in this crazy world with so much going on, it's such a blessing to know that all things are happening according to your plan and your purpose. Uh, you have uh, given us the gift of biblical prophecy, a lens to look at even uh, troublesome times that we're living in like this. And Lord, we don't want to just uh, see future events and uh, and look at them as some kind of intellectual plaything. Uh, Lord, we want to realize that you give us prophecy to assure our hearts and to motivate us to godly living. Uh, Lord, uh, we realize the day of our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. Who knows, you might even come back for us before this program is over. So, Father, we pray that as we answer questions, as we explore what's going on in the news around the world, as uh, we take a look at these things, especially through the light of your word, we pray that you would be honored and glorified. Thank you for this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, when it comes to any eye on prophecy, See, there's certainly a lot of things internationally that we can discuss as well, and locally for us here in the United States, but our eye should start on Israel. So let's expand out from there. What's happening in Israel right now? Well, uh, not so much in Israel, but it certainly involves Israel. As uh, many of you know, there's a big confab uh, about to go on at the United Nations uh, General Assembly, and uh, among other things, anticipated Tomorrow, Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid, who is more or less a caretaker prime minister until the next elections. There's not enough votes to form uh, a government there in the Israeli Knesset. We talk a little bit about uh, their parliamentary form of government, uh, much like the uh, the British Parliament. Uh, you have to have enough 
representatives on your side to have a majority in the 120-member Knesset in order to form a government, and then you can pick your prime minister. Well, uh, that hasn't happened for uh, going on six election cycles in Israel now, and there's another one coming up in October. But till then, uh, Yair Lapid is the caretaker uh, prime Minister de facto, anyway, in Israel, and he is expected to deliver some interesting remarks, controversial remarks, uh, to the UN General Assembly uh, when he addresses them tomorrow morning for the first time. It's been uh, a lot of years since an Israeli prime minister spoke of a two-state solution when addressing the UN, but in Lapid, he will explain that separating from the Palestinians quote, has to be a part of the nation's vision. With that in mind, quote, Israel will not do anything that will endanger the security of Israel or the security of the citizens of Israel by even an inch, but separation from the Palestinians should be a part of the political vision, part of the concept of hope out of strength. Uh, these come from unknown sources, but fairly reliable ones. Uh, Lapid believes the importance of dialogue, but uh, despite the words he plans to deliver at the U.N., it's interesting, he does not plan to meet with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, the last time they spoke was back in August, uh, where Lapid called with good wishes to Abbas over a Muslim holiday. Uh, comments uh, such as the one that Abbas made in Germany, in which he said Israel has committed 50 holocausts against the Palestinians, make conversations much more difficult, according to that same source. So uh, his speech is coming at a time where there's increasing opposition in Israel to a two-state solution. Uh, Lapid said that his father did not survive the Holocaust to come to Israel, just so there could be a binational state, said the source. So uh, interesting indeed, when we talk about a two-state solution, uh, if you're not familiar with the, the situation on the ground there. At first blush, it sounds uh, like a possibility. Let's give the Palestinians a state uh, side by side with the Israelis and everyone will get along, uh, to quote Rodney King. Well, there are a number of problems with that. First of all, uh, the Fatah party, uh, which Mahmoud Abbas is the prime minister, is not the only party that uh, captures the uh, attention and admiration of the Palestinians. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the reasons that Mahmoud Abbas has overstayed his term limit as the prime minister of the Palestinian state uh, by some 11 years now is that poll after poll shows that if open elections were held, the Palestinians on the ground in the West Bank uh, so-called uh, Palestinian territories would overwhelmingly put into office representatives of the terrorist group Hamas, which includes in its charter its uh, main reason for existence is to drive all the Jews into the sea. Which is a quote, by the way, from the Hadith. So uh, the fact of the matter is uh, Mahmoud Abbas is a master at doing exactly what his predecessor, Yasser Arafat, used to do. That is, uh, when he was speaking in English to Western audiences, he would say all the right things that these people wanted to hear. But when speaking in Arabic to his homies, if you will, uh, he would, uh, again, uh, toe the uh, Quranic party line and talk about wiping out the Jews and so on. That's why we haven't had any kind of significant uh, interactions between uh, the Jews and the Palestinians since the Oslo Accords, uh, which, by the way, uh, only uh, 
managed to set the scene for Ehud Barak uh, basically having a sit-down with Yasser Arafat, offering him the West Bank as a Palestinian state, with East Jerusalem as its capital. Offered him everything he asked for. Uh, Arafat turned him down and uh, launched what was called the Second Intifada, where uh, thousands of Jews lost their lives in terrorist attacks. Why was that? Well, if you are a Palestinian politician, you realize that in a sense, uh, you've got to walk an interesting line. You hate Israel, uh, you hate the Jews, uh, but on the other side of the coin, if uh, Israel wasn't around to blame all the problems on, you might have to say effectively govern your people. You might have to provide them with basic services. You might have to deal with the uh, uh, rent, uh, the uh, wanton poverty, and uh, and uh, and horrible standard of living that the uh, Palestinians live under. You might have to actually govern. And so, note voluntarily. Whenever Israel makes an opportunity to guide them into proper housing environments or regulations regarding how they're supposed to be building their structures or communities, even giving out food regulations, they will not accept it. And in fact, they will use it as for resale to purchase weapons. Yeah, as a classic example of that, uh, as you recall, as a peace gesture, uh, Israel, uh, who can, at one point controlled the Gaza Strip, moved out of the Gaza Strip, including uprooting a number of Jewish settlers who had established uh, very sophisticated hydroponic-style farming in that uh, particular area. These uh, very sophisticated state-of-the-art greenhouses and so forth were producing an incredible amount of uh, fruit and vegetables, and uh, uh, essentially the Israeli government came in and picked up uh, their own citizens and kicked them out. Well, the Palestinians immediately came in, and instead of using uh, these uh, greenhouses and uh, advanced technologies to be able to better themselves, they immediately tore the whole thing down and, uh, as you said, used some of the scrap to try to buy weapons. So, you know, you have to understand that uh, although uh, this sort of uh, gesture sounds good to a Western audience, if you've ever been there on the ground, you know it's kind of a non-starter to begin with. Uh, the reaction to uh, Yair Lapid's speech, even his uh, co-prime uh, minister, they shared uh, the office for a while, Benny Gantz, uh, just really blasted uh, the, uh, 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 the, the whole uh, tenor of all of this. And uh, obviously, as you know, in Israel, the one thing that uh, they seem to do best is uh, they seem to uh, point uh, fingers at one another. Former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett slammed Prime Minister Yair Lapid on Wednesday, saying that it made no sense to raise the issue of a two-state solution before the United Nations. So, uh, again, he said, there is no place or logic to raise the idea of a Palestinian state. We need to say very clearly there is no place for another state between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River, not just because of our right to the land, but also because practically there is no chance of a diplomatic process with the Palestinians succeeding. Uh, It's uh, fascinating uh, just to go down all of the different uh, quotes and all of the uh, finger-pointing and blaming that is going on in uh, this set of circumstances, but suffice it to say, uh, the, the, the comment that uh, really made sense uh, came from uh, a uh, 
particular party's uh, uh, representative in the Israeli parliament, Ayman Ode, who said the country's leaders have gotten used to loving the peace process, but not peace itself, speaking eloquently throughout the world and carrying out an ugly occupation at the same time. The real test is on the ground. Do it. Make peace. Well, that requires some budging on both sides which is not going to happen. So the long and the short of it is going to be uh, Yair Lapid's uh, statement uh, tomorrow at the UN is simply going to stir up a hornet's nest. It's going to be used by crafty politicians like Mahmoud Abbas to say, oh, well, it's Israel that's being entrenched in here. We, we really want peace and uh, the uh, boycott, uh, divest, and sanction people are going to use this as another opportunity to be able to say that Israel uh, is the real oppressor in this area, and if only they would make peace, the Palestinians would lay down their weapons. To which I would reply, if uh, the Palestinians and the Arabs would lay down their weapons, there would be peace. I believe this was Golda Meir who said this. If Israel laid down their weapons, uh, there would be no Israel. So uh, very interesting things going on there in Israel. But uh, wait, there's more. Uh, Lapid is also going to speak about Iran during his speech. He will emphasize that Israel will not allow Tehran to become a nuclear state. If it is necessary, this is agreed upon with the Americans. We will act on our own, the source said. We do not have to update anyone. We do not have to ask permission from anyone. So that noise that you just heard is uh, tensions ratcheting up uh, another few notches there in the Middle East between Iran and uh, Israel. Lapid is expected to put forward an alternative to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that we have talked about, the so-called Iran nuclear deal. But uh, I will okay. tell you the, I, the chances of Iran uh, going along with that sort of thing uh, are between slim and none. And speaking of Iran, uh, their own uh, president, Ibrahim Raisi, who we said uh, earlier this week, been identified with the uh, slaughter of 3,000 dissidents during his uh, reign uh, as uh, one of the uh, protégés of the Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, you know, had some very interesting remarks to make about uh, Iran's prospects uh, for peace. He said this, there will soon be a change in the world order, a unilateral world, a world of hegemony, a world in which financial power controls behavior with the use of international organizations as a tool of oppression on defenseless nations. A new order is shaping up to take its place. Uh, the not-so-veiled appeal was to many of the world nations sitting on the fence between a world led by the U.S. and the EU versus those considering a new world order led by the new axis of evil, China, Russia, and Iran. So, uh, in fact, uh, the, uh, the idea behind this to begin a campaign to try to win a future potential vote at the UN Security Council uh, about sanctions and so forth that would obligate both China and Russia, this is really what uh, was going on here. Uh, Raisi failed to mention that uh, the International Atomic Energy uh, Agency director, Rafael Grossi, said for three years that the Islamic Republic had failed to explain three illicit uses of nuclear material, which appeared to be militaristic in nature. He did not mention the 27 IAEA cameras that have been shut off since June, possibly allowing the nation to conceal critical portions of its nuclear uranium stock 
this, uh, according to the Jerusalem Post, was not the speech of a leader with no intention of cutting a deal with the U.S., but the speech of a leader ready for a long and extended fight with the U.S., potentially deep into next year. Israel will need to be on its guard to make sure that Iran does not use this dead period to break out the nuclear weapon that Raisi pretended his country has no interest in. So uh, fascinating stuff going on there for sure. And uh, on another note, uh, right off one of the uh, most popular beaches in Israel, a cave was discovered uh, that uh, has uh, intact uh, implements and jars and vases, a burial site that dates itself back Oh, to uh, roughly the late Bronze Age or uh, near to the time of the Exodus. It's supposed to be a very uh, amazing, almost Indiana Jones-like uh, uh, series of discoveries that are being made there. We don't know the full extent of these discoveries, but uh, certainly has raised uh, some questions about uh, who exactly was the pharaoh of Egypt and the date of the Exodus and all that. So if you'd like to discuss that on the program, we certainly can. Absolutely. Now, of course, a lot of people, especially here in the United States, also would look slightly uh, further north from Persia or Iran into Europe, and there's been more rumors of wars with Vladimir Putin threatening nuclear action. And uh, what was it, 30,000 more conscripts to the Russian army? Uh, he made an announcement that there's going to be a uh, draw-up of uh, 137,000 additional soldiers. Okay. Now, what he has also done, is, and this is fascinating, is that he has also issued a ban on anyone between the ages of 18 and 65 leaving Russia at this time. In other words, you go to the airport and you're between those ages, you're a male, you're turned back. He needs you to be one of his conscripts. So uh, again, uh, the idea of throwing more troops at this uh, particular uh, uh, situation is very interesting indeed. He also made a speech uh, earlier where he declared that all options were on the table, including uh, the use of tactical weapons, uh, a reference to nuclear weapons. Now, here in the United States, we look at that and uh, we have a hard time understanding why someone would ratchet up uh, the tensions along this line. But once again, uh, I read a fascinating uh, analysis of this uh, that talks about uh, this, this highlights one of the great errors that we've seen made over and over again by our State Department and really even the Pentagon in that we try to evaluate the actions of individuals in other cultures in other parts of the world as if they shared our worldview as Americans. Uh, this has been uh, one of the reasons, uh, for instance, uh, that uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal uh, was uh, so tremendously unsuccessful, was such a disaster, uh, was because the uh, people in Foggy Bottom, as it's known, uh, where the State Department is in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, thought that, uh, you know, hey, you know, if we uh, make friends with the Taliban and tell them that we're leaving, uh, they're going to go ahead and cooperate. Uh, they're going to be uh, nice people, and uh, we won't have to worry about any kind of problems along those lines. Well, as we saw, uh, the Taliban don't think that particular way. One of the great differences between the Islamic world and our world is that, uh, you know, during uh, the Cold War, there was a military doctrine called MAD, or mutually assured destruction. And it was based upon this idea. We and the Russians shared one value. We wanted to live. 
We wanted essentially to have a good society where our children can grow up, where uh, we can enjoy a standard of living. We don't want to blow the whole thing to kingdom come. And so because of that, uh, the Russian nuclear arsenal and our nuclear arsenal essentially created a standoff. And it, and it was a shaky piece for sure at certain times, but it was a piece that was maintained because we shared that value. Now we are in the midst of getting into uh, uh, interactions, uh, for instance, in the Middle East, with individuals who look at dying in jihad as the greatest thing you could ever do in your life. They don't want to live. They want to die. So how do you have mutually assured destruction with an enemy that looks at their only hope of guaranteed salvation, or really even salvation at all, as dying in jihad? Which, again, is a quotation from their prophet and primary sources, we love death more than you love life. Yeah. So... Anyway, uh, the, the, the fascinating thing about all this is we're kind of applying that to Russia. You know, as it's been said, uh, you know, in the United States, our national sport's baseball, but in uh, Russia, their national sport is chess. Uh, and uh, we need to realize that that's kind of the thought process that is going on here. Uh, some people made comments about Vladimir Putin seemingly a bit off, not as sharp as he used to be. It sounds somewhat familiar. But, uh, you know, if you've got an individual like him who is now uh, essentially holed up in his command center in the Ural Mountains, he's not even in Moscow uh, these days, uh, calling the shots in an increasingly uh, frustrating set of circumstances. I mean, I'm sure when they invaded the Ukraine, they thought that this was going to take uh, a few weeks, shock and awe, and we'll take over the whole country, and that'll be that. Well, uh, Russia has been steadily losing ground, so much so that uh, Ukraine has been emboldened enough to launch a few missiles at Russian installations that are located inside Russian territory. Well, one of the things that Putin said in his speech today is that if uh, Mother Russia, as he would refer to her, her territory is threatened, Russia will use every resource it has at its disposal to answer back. Right. And, uh, and so wars... Rumors of wars, uh, Israel uh, stirring the pot with the ill-advised politicians uh, bringing us back to a, uh, a, a philosophy of trying to find peace in the Middle East with someone who doesn't want peace on the other side. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, Steve Joss, uh, one of our, our uh, tour guides, who essentially said that entering into a negotiation with the Palestinian is like entering into a negotiation by saying, hey, we want peace, that's our opening bid, and their opening bid is, we want you dead. Not much room to maneuver with someone taking that particular position. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus said wars and rumors of wars were going to uh, increase in frequency and intensity as the time of his return drew near. I think we're definitely seeing, wouldn't you say, a war and a rumor of war going on here. Well, absolutely. And there's another section of that passage in Matthew 24 and verse 12. He also noted, and this is our exhortation to you, that because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And we also want to inform you of an opportunity for just that taking place. If you remember the riots that took place in 2019 in leading up to the presidential election that we are now suffering from today, there was not only a number of lives lost among the police force, but also billions, literally, 
of damages done as a result of what they themselves couldn't even define. There was video footage that was released, and note this happens more often than we'd like to admit, but this is one that actually made in the public, of someone announcing, we got a Trumper over here, and a shot was fired. The person committing first-degree murder was then given the full sentence and punishment of an interview on Vice, the YouTube channel that celebrates left-wing politics. Now we have another repeat offense that we want you to be informed of and to respond to properly. We won't mention the individual's name because it's not worth mentioning, but we do know that you are not only capable of looking it up, but want to focus on the judge that acted in response to this. An individual from North Dakota found out that another individual was a conservative. He was not... They got into a debate. Yeah, they were not, of course, agreeing with them on political views, whether it was finances or foreign policy. He was right, and the individual we are talking about was left. He then considered this justification to murder him in the first degree, premeditated murder, on the motivation of his political leanings. And instead of being charged with first degree murder, which we can verify, we are informed that he was let out on a cash bond, which is a violation. Fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. yeah, a violation of American law. Now, when we see, and this of course concerns a lot of those in the Christian community, which is majority conservative, uh, basically painting a target on the back of our heads and noting that if people aren't going to be punished for killing us, then what's the difference between us in the United States and the Jews in Israel? And we have to be frank and say, if this continues to be the status quo among our justice system, not much. And here's how we need to respond. When Jesus made the observation that lawlessness would abound as a rule, not just in Israel, not just in Europe, not even in Soviet Russia, we're talking about as a rule. People will not exist under a law. They will simply do, as we read in Judges, what is right in their own eyes. We're going to be living in difficult times, and we're going to continue to be living in difficult times. But Matthew 24 and verse 12 is not the end of the chapter. He then goes on to say, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, is this a call to survival? Is this a call to arms? Or is this a call to perseverance on what actually matters? The Apostle Paul made an exhortation to Timothy, speaking of in the latter days, people not only heaping up for themselves false teachers, but embracing every single form of vice and lack of virtue. And he tells him, but you, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. That's our calling here today. When we hear about the events going on in Israel, Russia, Persia, or North Dakota, for goodness sake, it all comes back to the same response we need to be having, regardless of the natural fear responses they inspire, and that is what? What am I here to do while I am still here? Whether I'm taken out for dumb reasons or for legitimate ones, I want to be caught essentially in every situation with the attitude, okay, how can I serve Jesus in these circumstances? Because whether it's those during the tribulation or beforehand fleeing for their lives, the underground churches in Persia and in China, both are in that situation. We here in the United States are somewhat unaccustomed to this kind of living. We are very grateful, and should be, of this kind of expectation of laws being applied equally. And while that is 
not necessarily slowly, but definitely gradually going away, we still can take advantage of the time that we have. Make sure that in every circumstance and situation, we're not in fear of where politics will bring us, because we already know the answer to that. Whether it's quickly or slowly, it's all going to descend into the Antichrist's arms. But we also know that the Lord is still on the throne, that he still has a purpose for us being here, and if we understand it as a battleground rather than a playground, then all that's left is to understand our rules of engagement. How do we fight? Well, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul spelled it out very clearly. He said, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We don't run people over for disagreeing with us like liberals. We don't shoot people or behead them with dull knives like Muslims. We fight with arguments. We bring every thought into captivity that exalts itself against the Word of God. Know your Bible, know the truth, know why you believe it, and make sure that in every conversation, regardless of the individual that you're speaking to, it comes back to the resurrection. Because even if you're in that situation and you end up losing your life for talking about Jesus— what a way to enter into heaven's gates than saying, man, I was quoting Romans and they beheaded me, man. Well, you'd be in good company. So yeah. make sure that that's your source of information. Anything more to say before we go out to our questions? Yeah, just one other thing. I thought it was interesting that you uh, quoted from 2 Timothy chapter 4 uh, about uh, the, the fact that uh, we have a prophecy there. It says, for the time will come uh, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they'll turn their ears away from the truth, be, be turned aside to fables. Uh, but I love this next line. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Boy, you know, when we see things uh, start to heat up as far as opposition to truth, as far as signs of the times going on, as far as this world uh, looking like it's uh, definitely got an expiration date on it, boy, evangelism sharing your faith with those on the outside looking in at a relationship with God really needs to be front and center. You know, God called us to be witnesses, exhibit A to the world of the difference that Jesus can make within our lives. So, you know, one of the most important things I think that we can do if we want to be a part of uh, lighting a single candle rather than cursing the darkness is uh, beginning our day, just pray, just say, Lord, uh, I want to shine with your light. I know I can't do it by myself, uh, please uh, fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit. And as I'm filled with the power of your Holy Spirit, bring someone across my path where I can share your love, even if it's just praying for them. You know, one of the things that I've discovered lately, both Pam and I have uh, really seen, especially with non-believers, uh, some powerful opportunities for ministry that have come about just because we didn't treat them like they were heathens or, you know, they, and we just basically related to them, just like they were Christians. And if they started to share something that was going on in their life that was kind of tough, we'd say, well, can we pray for you about that? And, and you should see the look on people's faces. Uh, they just seem stunned. Uh, the vast majority of people have never had anybody pray for them. And when you talk to the Lord and you talk to them, to him in harmony with the love relationship he's given you with Jesus when you are allowed uh, during that time to speak God's truth, even as you're praying for them, boy, that can be a powerful, powerful time. So, you know, again, that, there's all kinds of different ways to uh, share God's truth out there. Uh, but, uh, you know, wherever the Lord leads you, consider doing the work of an evangelist. Consider praying that God will give you the opportunity to get outside your comfort zone, uh, your, uh, your circle of Christian friends, 
and uh, be able to reach out to this lost and hurting world. We don't know how much time we got left, but we do know what the Bible tells us to do with it. All right. Now, uh, out to your questions. Uh, got a lot of good ones lined up. Uh, starting with Casey, uh, she wants to know, can the coming upon experience of the Holy Spirit happens years later than the experience of him with and dwelling inside a believer? In her experience, of course, uh, she wasn't really uh, eager to share her faith, but at the right time, at the right moment, she was given what she needed, and it was, of course, eye-opening. But the question, I think, would dove down to this. What kind of experiences do we have with the Holy Spirit, believer, non-believer, or veteran of the faith? Yeah. Well, John 14, Jesus made uh, two observations about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He said that the Spirit is with you and will be in you. Now, what's the difference between a with-you experience and an in-you experience? Well, with-you would be essentially what we'd classify as the state of existing. In Job chapter 33 and verse 4, Job made the correct observation that if the Spirit were to withdraw himself from the world, all life would return to the dust. The omnipresent work of the Spirit is not only, as we read in Revelation chapter 4 and Colossians 1, creating but sustaining all of the universe. And along with that presence of God, there is this John chapter 16 reference, convicting work, making people aware of the fact they need a Savior. And this, of course, is in specific ways and personal to them. So he's with us in the sense that he is working, in a sense, from the outside in to draw us to salvation. And then when we make a decision to receive Christ, he's in us. Yes, and that is what we would call salvation. That's the fine line between someone who is born once and born twice, someone who is separate from God but still benefiting from his blessings, and someone who has fellowship with God through the sacrifice of his Son, responding to that conviction. But then the people would wonder, okay, so Holy Spirit's obviously omnipresent, so he's with us, but cut off from a fellowship with most of us. Those who have fellowship with him, are not only with him, but in him, as Jesus advertised to his disciples. And Casey wisely used the word coming upon. He will work through us. Is that... Yeah, coming upon, yeah. literally. Uh, Jesus' promise in uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you should receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Uh, Chuck Smith was famous for using those three different uh, uh, prepositions, if you will. Uh, that the Holy Spirit is with you when he draws you to salvation. He's in you the moment you receive Christ, but he also wants to come upon you to give you the power to be a witness. Now, Casey, your big uh, question is, can an individual have the with and in relationship with the Holy Spirit, but only years later uh, receive uh, the coming upon power of the Holy Spirit? Well, we do see that uh, happening in the book of Acts. Uh, For instance, in Acts chapter 8, when uh, Philip went down to Samaria and was having this uh, incredible uh, ministry down there, leading many of the Samaritans to faith in Christ, Peter and John came down, and only when they came down and laid hands on the Samaritans did they receive the coming upon power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, So uh, blown away 
was a, an individual there who was uh, previously marketing himself as someone great, a uh, magician of the Samaritans, that he actually uh, offered money. His name was Simon Bar-Jesus, believe it or not. He offered money to the apostles so that if he laid hands on people, they'd receive the Holy Spirit. So what was the sign of that? Was the outward sign, the manifestation, the power of the Holy Spirit? Could have been the gift of speaking in tongues. Could have been the power to evangelize. Could have been the power to, to prophesy, to speak God's Word in, in power and in, and in conviction. Uh, all of the gifts of the Spirit could be manifested at that point, but it was very impressive. But notice, uh, there was no doubt about the fact that the Samaritans had received the Lord under uh, Philip's uh, ministry that he was in, uh, having there. And so there was a time in between. Casey, I do think uh, one of the sadder things that I have seen is that there are an awful lot of denominations and people that have been raised in that kind of an environment who definitely have had the with it experience of the Holy Spirit. Uh, God's opened their eyes to the truth. He has definitely come into them. They are definitely born again. But maybe because they've had bad experiences with the people who've emphasized that coming upon power of the Holy Spirit, the charismatic movement or the Pentecostal movement, uh, they don't really want to have anything to do with the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's, that's really tragic because uh, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, uh, the, the language indicates be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. So we need daily to ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon us, to empower us, and that doesn't necessarily mean that we are going to, uh, say, run around barking like dogs or clucking like chickens. It doesn't mean that we're going to fall for the latest dog and pony show uh, that comes down the way, oh, I saw gold uh, falling from the ceiling or things like this. Uh, no, what it means is God is going to give us the power, the power to do what? To be my witnesses, not the power to have uh, spiritual tinglies at a service, not power to, uh, you know, say, uh, run around and, uh, and have some over-the-top emotional experience, but the power to be an example of the difference, the change that the born-again experience with Jesus can make within a life. And again, going back to the question, Casey, when people ask, is it right to have this sort of delay? Well, for the apostles, when Jesus gave them that commission in Luke 26, I believe it was, he would say, what? Terry in Jerusalem. Right. Well, how long did that take? It was a little over a month. But what was interesting about that as well was it wasn't because they didn't have enough faith or they had such a fractured fellowship with God for the last 40 days that they just really needed to get back into action so that by the time Pentecost came around, they were ready. No, yeah. the reason the Holy Spirit worked through them at that time was because it was Pentecost, his timing. So don't worry, Casey, it's not a defect in your faith if it's not time immediately or not always given to you when you think it ought to be. The Spirit's going to do what the Spirit's going to do. We just, again, have the opportunity daily to say, hey, God, you're doing anything nearby. I'd love to be a part of it. Yeah, you know, and in, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 13, Jesus made the statement, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for Him? So if you want that coming upon power, all you have to do is ask. That's all you have to do. You don't have to go to a tarrying meeting. You don't have to confess uh, sins from 30 years ago. All you have to do is ask of the Lord, and he will give you that good gift. 
All right. A uh, question from Dwayne who wants to know our opinion on the I don't like religion, but I love Jesus mindset. Again, like anything else, you have to specify what you mean. If, for example, you just are bad on the idea of religion as a word, well, the Apostle James uses it in a positive context, and his religion is profitable before God. But if, on the other hand, what you're talking about is the legalistic and ceremonial approach to God that says if you don't do things in the secondary way that I prefer to do them, like not just doctrines, but just in the order that I observe them, and shame everyone who isn't as holy as thou, then I appreciate it. This is where I think the most common ground can be given on any topic on this matter. First, when it comes to what actually matters in the Christian life, it should always focus and center on Jesus as the focal point of our religion. That uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1 says that if we're following Jesus, that is the foundation of Christianity. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's our religion. But if, on the other hand, uh, people are just down on vocab terms, then I'd at least be gracious enough with them to use another phraseology. Make sure that you clarify what you mean. If it's just the concept of a religion, you, you note even in our own sermons, we'll in a broad sense, say this is the difference between a religion and a relationship with Jesus. We're using religion in the sense that it means your systematic approach to God based on your works. Yeah. We don't believe that. Yeah. But if, on the other hand, you talk to someone who's just like, the word religion makes me break out in hives, well, I'd say cool out and get some aloe vera or something. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the word religion uh, that is used in James is the word uh, thracia, and uh, it, it would be uh, wonderful if uh, that was such a defined thing. We could say, Jesus, yes, religion, no. But uh, thracia can be used of um, illegitimate worship, mm -hmm. um, you know, the worshiping of angels, uh, for instance, talked about in the book of Colossians chapter 2, uh, not good. Uh, the religion of uh, the Jews, referred to in Acts chapter 26 and verse 5. In opposition to Jesus. In, in opposition to Jesus. But in James, uh, this word uh, is uh, modified by saying pure religion. Uh, in other words, uh, the idea of religion is this idea of approaching God in a somewhat systematic way. Uh, so did Jesus approach God and tell us to approach God in somewhat of a systematic way? Well, there's a number of uh, instances where he told us how to systematically approach God. For instance, uh, the famous Lord's Prayer. Uh, he told us how not to approach God, do not be like the heathen who think they will be heard for their many words, but when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and, and so on. Jesus gives us a structure, if you will, for our prayer life. Now, when we have that structure, uh, that is where the rubber meets the road as far as religion goes. Uh, false religion, like the externalized uh, religion that is warned about in Acts chapter 26, uh, is the idea that if I just say these words, somehow there's some mystical commodity to it, and God's got to do what I say. Uh, I've been in churches and around people who can say the Lord's Prayer so fast and without any kind of meaning in their heart that they might as well uh, be thinking they're going to be heard for their many words. Some will even say you have to say the Lord's Prayer so many times in order for certain things to happen spiritually. That's religion. 
see, it disengages the mind. It's not intelligent. It disengages, most importantly, the heart. That is what God is looking for. That's what pure religion is all about. So nothing wrong with, uh, say, having some uh, disciplines that you use. If you have a daily quiet time, in a sense, that is that thracia, that is that, uh, that structure in your walk with God. You read your Bible every day, that is that thracia, if you will. I mean, we could use that term religion to describe it. Uh, unfortunately, the note that you made about religion where so many people will get down to minutia and say, if you do not baptize the way we baptize, we baptize three times, one for the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. Oh, no, no, no. You can only baptize in Jesus' name. What? You want to be baptized more than once because uh, you want to worship God? No, no, that is, that is, that is uh, heathenism. You know, that's, that's the kind of religion that uh, we want to avoid, man-made religion, religion based on externals, religion that doesn't touch the heart in the slightest. That's something we want to avoid. Yep. Uh, question on YouTube. Uh, if they were to pray with the Jehovah's Witness and decide to address God in prayer using Jehovah to strike common ground, would that be appropriate uh, completely? And in fact, it might surprise them, because as far as the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, also known as Jehovah's Witnesses, are concerned, is that they're uh, I guess, literature would emphasize to them that this is how we know that they are the church of the devil, that they are other than God's holy organization. They don't even know the divine name, Jehovah. So if you were to use it, it might catch them off guard, because they're a very insulated and a very brainwashed group. You're not allowed to read what they call apostate literature, and that's under threat of being uh, disfellowshipped, they call it. Yeah. So what's interesting, again, about that, and just to give you, again, more than what you asked, but still helpful, is understand what you're saying. When they use the word Jehovah, it's actually a Germanic attempt at pronouncing what we call the Tetragrammaton, the four letters, yod heth vau heth in Hebrew, which is a vowless attempt at the covenant name of God. Unpronounceable on purpose. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, again, we would uh, make a guess, Jehovah, Yahweh, um, take your pick, but the Hebrew language doesn't have a J sound in it, so there is a less than 1% chance, actually a less than 0% chance, that it was pronounced Jehovah. But they would make that point of emphasis in saying, this is the covenant name of God, when it was an attempt at German translation. So um, note that if you say Jehovah, the Lord knows what you mean, and uh, if you want to throw in a little Deutsch along with it, then I'm sure that would be humorous from a heavenly perspective. But if you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, it A, would not be a compromise of doctrine, it would, in fact, be an opportunity, perhaps, for more credibility than not. But third, in any conversation with the Jehovah's Witness, make sure the conversation goes back to and ultimately culminates with the deity of Christ, because that's the one thing that's keeping them from legitimate a relationship with God. That's yeah. what all those conversations need to be. If they want to mince details about the Trinity and the Council of Nicaea, they won't let you confuse them with the facts, because they'll literally go home with their families holding a knife to their throat. Make sure that that is what the conversation ultimately comes down to, because that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in their life on overtime. Yeah. So yeah, don't worry about Jehovah. That's just German. Yeah. Um, question. This is a great one from Ezekiel, who wants to know, does the Dome of the Rock have to be destroyed 
for a third temple to be built during the tribulation. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the question, Ezekiel. This is a big let, one of speculation. Yeah, let me ask you a question, though. How many times has the Dome of the Rock been destroyed? Did 20 times the last time I looked up. <laughs> yeah, it's not a really a permanent fixture, if you will. It's gone down a few times. Yeah, the one we're yeah. seeing today was renovated by the uh, infamous Babylonian dictator Saddam Hussein. But what's uh, hilarious about that as well is they weren't destroyed always by invading powers or competing Muslim sects. That had happened once or twice. But what I grin ear to ear at over and over again whenever I read about these reports is they were actually... <laughs> They tore down the Dome of the Rock as a result of earthquakes. I think that's a not-so-subtle hint. But that being said, um, those of you who don't know, the Dome of the Rock is that big, fancy building. You see a picture of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. It's the big gold dome structure that tends to draw the most attention. And why that's so sacred to people is because of the mirage that was supposedly had by Muhammad. Uh, It says that he took a night journey on this weird-looking wrinkle-in-time horse, and uh, it took him up to heaven where he kind of haggled with God over the amount of times they were supposed to pray. And what's interesting is, again, that was a spiritual dream, not a physical journey. We have his child bride Aisha's word on that. But what's also important to note is that what that building houses in the furthermost mosque, as it's called, despite that mosque being built 20-something years after Muhammad's death. Don't let that confuse you. Um, (laughs) The interesting aspect is it has an engraving in stone in one of the earliest archaeological evidences of something found in the Quran, and that is, of course, in the surah that reads, this is a whole surah of the Quran, God is not begotten, nor does he beget. Uh, Fundamental polemic and denial of the Trinity. It was uh, built by a, you know, a Muslim leader by the name of Abdel Malik, I believe, and again, this was decades after the death of Muhammad. Uh, no actual evidence of Umar conquering Jerusalem, but we do have evidence of him popularizing Muhammad as his central figure. Uh, if you'd like more information on that, look up the research of Jay Smith and the uh, issues with Muslim archaeology. But with that all being said, the reason why people wonder, is the Dome of the Rock going to be there or not, is because Muslims being the infants that they are, when they conquer over areas, they like to not just build a mosque as a victory monument over it. We saw this at the 9-11 mosque. We see this in the Ramayana, or not Ramayana, the Lord Rama um, temple in India, and we also note the Hagia Sophia was also converted into a mosque when they finally conquered Constantinople. It's all centered around this mindset that you can't build your church again because we conquered it. It's ours now. And the hilarious part, again, why I say it's in on the part of Muslims is because on the Temple Mount, that huge slab of real estate that's been vacant since the time the Titus's Roman legions burned it to the ground, is because they don't actually know where the temple was built. And so what they did was they built not just the Dome of the Rock, that was introduced later, they have Al-Aqsa Mosque, and they have a bunch of these little slabs that have a direction of prayer, and all these other things, they just cover the place in these tiny little mosques. And that's an attempt to say, hey, you demolish our mosque, you you aren't allowed, this this is mine now. Yeah. So anyway, the question is, how are they going to clear this out? And in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, as well as Ezekiel, uh, I believe chapter 4, what would it be? Um, 40? 40, yes. Yeah. The interesting thing is there's a description given of the rebuilt temple, noting at specific dimensions some a place being cut off 
because it was given to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations. Or to separate in Ezekiel uh, the the holy holy from from the common, which can literally be translated the blasphemous or obscene. Which we would rightly conclude in the direct denial of Jesus' sonship. God is not begotten, nor does he beget. That's the Al-Aqsa Mosque, right? And that's the theory, is that there will be room provided for the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, or maybe Muslims will take a hint and the religion itself will collapse by the time of the Antichrist. Here's hoping. But the point being made is just that. When we're talking about there being a division of the land of Israel, that's prophesied as the reason why God will return to judge the nations. When it comes to the substance of it, however, how it's all going to play out, it's entirely speculative. But those are the two passages to keep in mind, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40, and Revelation 3, I believe, yeah. And Revelation yeah. 11, where it yeah. notes that distinction. But whether or not it mentions uh, Islam in any way, it doesn't. Whether it mentions the um, you know Quranic text, it doesn't. Whether it even mentions Muhammad, despite Muslim clerics' best efforts, it doesn't. So just make sure that that's kept as an open possibility, whatever ends up either replacing that or taking uh, up residency during the time of the Antichrist kingdom might be another religion entirely. We don't know. Yeah. But let's just make sure that that's what's understood, what the text says, not what we infer into it. But it is interesting. Revelation 11, Ezekiel 40-ish. <laughs> yeah, uh, Ezekiel 42 and verse 20 All right, thank is you. the uh, passage about separating the holy place from the common, if you will. Uh, another interesting uh, question uh, just uh, floated in here. Uh, you know, this person is asking about uh, the Jewish holidays coming up. And do these Jewish holidays uh, give us a heads up for the coming of the rapture? Nope. Well, a couple <laughs> things here. What Jewish holidays are coming up? Uh, Rosh Hashanah, which is Jewish New Year, is uh, going to begin at sunset uh, on uh, Sunday, September 25th, uh, and uh, will end on the nightfall of Tuesday, September 27th. Uh, this year, that is on the Jewish calendar, the month of Elul, uh, and uh, again, uh, that is when that's going to happen. That's followed uh, by Yom Kippur, which will be Tuesday, October 4th, 2022, which will be followed by the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, uh, I should say, uh, on uh, October 9th, not followed, uh, but um, that will come after all of that. Uh, then uh, there are a couple of other uh, uh, Sabbaths uh, that are set aside, uh, the seven joyous days of Sukkot, as it's known, uh, and then uh, the next on the list would be Hanukkah. Inevitably, uh, what comes up when Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Tabernacles uh, come about, uh, people will say, well, uh, this is when the rapture is going to happen. They have all kinds of interesting theories about all of that. Why don't we believe that? You always interpret your conclusions in light of other plain texts. If you can make a theory, you form a conclusion, but you test that conclusion with other statements made in Scripture. And if Jesus very plainly said, concerning the time of my return, no man knows the day or the hour, that of those anticipating it, it will be unanticipatable. Doesn't mean that no one will ever know what happened when it happens. Doesn't mean a general ballpark. Uh, can't yeah. be known. Yeah, but. the parable of the fig tree illustrates that. You can translate if you want. But the point being made is just that very plain statements of Jesus forbid that interpretation. No man knows the day or the hour, specifically in regard to his return. Even if you mark that as judgment day, the point still stands. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in a sense, if people get excited about these sort of things, 
uh, and it causes them to focus in on the fact that Jesus could come at any moment, well, then good on you. You know, I, I think that that's, that's fine. Uh, we should wake up every day and say, hey, perhaps today, Lord, I'm going to see you face to face because uh, the Lord could come at any moment. And uh, as well-loved children, we should always anticipate uh, being able to see uh, our Savior face to face. But where it becomes a little uh, tricky is that different people uh, have tried to trade on this sort of thing. There was a book put out uh, called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Must Return in 1988 that included that kind of date setting in it. And when that didn't happen, uh, there were an awful lot of people who just said, oh, forget about prophecy. Uh, nobody, uh, you know, this is just uh, fiction and so on. You know, which I think is really, really a, a tragic thing. Uh, and, and I think that's what happens when people will overplay their hand and say, I've figured it out, this is the day, and so on. As soon as somebody says, uh, this is the day and I've got it all figured out, I know they don't have it figured out because Jesus clearly said, no man knows the day or the hour. He did say, however, that we should be constantly watching for the event the Bible calls the rapture. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, I hope I don't have to wait uh, for uh, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur or, or Sukkot Tabernacles. Uh, to uh, come. I hope it happens much sooner than that. All right, and then uh, we'll finish this question from Dave, who wants to know a bit of the cultural details and nuances of the account of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Uh, as far as background goes, three passages to keep in mind, Genesis, Joshua, and 1 Kings. In Genesis chapter 24, and again in 35, the well that they were meeting at was one they claimed was established by Jacob, and that was the one that he built near Bethel, the house of God, where he claimed to have met with God. The Samaritans, we'll get more on that in a second, met at that place because they were forbidden from the temple. That would be the next best thing as as far as they're concerned, where God would meet, or had met, rather, with their common ancestor, Jacob. Yeah, Mount Gerizim, yeah. Uh, the second detail is, of course, in the book of Joshua, the dividing up of the territories in Israel after their conquest of the Promised Land. The reason why there were Samaritans is because of 1 Kings, a civil war that took place when they were taken into captivity by Assyria. The northern ten tribes, the one who did not follow Rehoboam, but Jeroboam, they were, of course, judged for their idolatry, like the southern two tribes were also judged later, but when they had intermarried with the Assyrians, they returned as the Samaritans, and this compromise is palpably uh, objected to in Nehemiah, not just on a biological ground, but also an ethical, and that's the main concern. By the time of Jesus's interaction with the Samaritan woman, they were considered cultural exiles, and they were proud of that, but uh, noting that point as well, when Jesus was meeting with the woman, we can talk more about those things in the icky business of what would be assumed, but note, they even observed he talks to the woman, but no one guessed his intentions being less than savory. That's uh, about as much as I can give with the time that we have. Yeah. So we'll yeah. go more into this tomorrow if you'd like, Dave. Let us know. But until then, God bless you. We'll see you all again next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.